Bibles, please uh, keep them handy and turn to 2 Samuel 7. Today we're going to consider a very important scripture. But, if I may put it this way, not the most important element of this very important scripture. We come to the Davidic covenant. A covenant which is essential to our understanding of what God is doing in Israel, what God is doing through us, what God is doing in salvation, what God has done in salvation. And this evening, we're going to walk through the passage and exposit it together. And then after expositing the passage, I'm going to give you an application that falls a little bit outside of the teaching on the Davidic covenant. Over the next two weeks, next week and the week after, we're going to go and do a little bit of a, a brief mini-series on the five kingdom covenants, the five important covenants in the scriptures as it relates to God's kingdom program. And when we uh, preach those two messages and the second of those two messages, I'm going to focus in on the Davidic covenant and give you a little more understanding of, of the covenant that we'll be reading about this evening. I did not feel as though I could do enough justice to the Davidic covenant if we exposit and explain the passage and then try to get into all of the implications of the covenant, particularly because you can't really study the Davidic covenant and understand its links without also talking about the other four covenants that we see in God's kingdom program. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and then of course the new covenant. And so over the next two weeks, starting next Sunday and then the Sunday night after that, we'll get into all of those covenants and, and we'll kind of put all those pieces together. So this evening I'm going to exposit the passage and then we're going to have an entirely, uh, a kind of a different angle for our application, something that's outside of the Davidic covenant application that we would perhaps normally draw from this passage, but, but, but is still worthy of our time and consideration as, as we um, apply these truths this evening. Now tonight, we're going to come across two main characters in the text. David, the king of Israel, and a prophet named Nathan. And while the text rightly focuses on David, after all, this is, it's, it's the text wherein we find the Davidic covenant. David is the focus here. Our focus this evening is actually going to turn toward Nathan and how Nathan interacts with David. One of the things we understand from Scripture is that simply having good intentions is not really enough with God, is it? There are plenty of people with good intentions who will never find the mercy of God through salvation. In fact, the old adage goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And in many respects, this is very true. And tonight we're going to see an example of good intentions before the Lord that yet fell short of God's perfect will and we'll use it as a bit of a warning in our own lives about the nature of, of just having good intentions without understanding the Lord's will to back it up. And so we begin tonight in 2 Samuel 7, and we'll read, we'll, we'll exposit the, the 17 verses, as you see there, but we'll begin reading in verses 1 and 2. The scriptures tell us, And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. 
but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. Recall where we left off last week. David has brought the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. It is back at the tabernacle, which was pitched in Jerusalem. Remember, David came into the city with dancing. Michael despised him in her heart. She rebuked him for acting like a fool. David said, I'll act as humble as I can possibly act if only the Lord may be magnified. And it tells, the text tells us that Michael did not have a child until the day she died. There was a, an irreparable rift put between David and Michael on that day. And we, we talked about that entire circumstance. So David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he puts it into the, the tabernacle, which was at this time still a tent. A tent by God's command, a tent by God's ordination. And David is now sitting in his house. Recall that this house had been built for him by Hiram, the king of Tyre. Hiram sent masons and sent lumber, uh, the, the cedars of Lebanon, to build David a house. It was a kingly gift for a king who was a, a rising star in the region, we could say. And so Hiram is built a house. Or Hiram builds David a house. David is sitting in this house. He's at rest from all of his enemies. He's defeated the Philistines. He's pushed them back. He's claimed land. No enemies would dare oppose David. He's strong. He's at rest. And it's here that we're introduced to a man named Nathan. Now, David would have a son named Nathan. This is not David's son. This is a prophet who God had risen up. Throughout David's former years, when he was fleeing from Saul, remember there was a prophet that, that stayed with David during those years. It was not Nathan. His name was Gad. And Gad was with David. And Gad has not disappeared. We see Gad come up again in 2 Samuel 24. But, but during David's physical reign, it's really Nathan the prophet that is, is the man who is having the most interaction with David. We see Nathan come up in three distinct time periods of David's life. He comes up here when God gives David this special covenant. He comes up in 2 Samuel 12 after David has had, has committed adultery with Bathsheba and has killed Uriah. And God sends Nathan to deal with David after that incident. And then we see him in 1 Kings chapter 1 where Nathan supports Solomon when there's that little civil war over who's going to be the next king. Nathan supports the rightful king, Solomon and his ascension to the throne. So David is speaking to this prophet named Nathan. He's sitting there in his house of cedars, and he's contemplating. He sees this beautiful house. He's considering God's blessings. And then he starts to think, I'm in this beautiful structure, and God's presence is in a tent. This contrast troubles him, that he has a ground house of cedar, and God is in a tent. Now, for a long time, the tent was necessary, right? The nation of Israel was effectively a Bedouin people. They, they were a people that lived in tents. They were mobile because they had no home. During their wanderings in the wilderness, the structure had to be mobile, or else they'd have to build a new one in each place that they went. They had to be mobile. Even during the time of the judges, the people weren't really settled. Places changed hands. The tribes were loosely affiliated. They would gain land, lose land. To set down a permanent place of worship at any of those times would have been unsustainable. But now, David is God's chosen king. He has chosen a capital. And David says, God should have a house. 
So he thinks up a plan. And the text doesn't really reflect what the plan is, only that David wants to build a house. So David says this, and notice what the scriptures tell us in verse 3. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now it's difficult to know exactly what happens here. We don't know how long Nathan had been there. We don't get a lot of details on this. But it seems as though Nathan comes in. David says, hey prophet, I want to talk to you. Nathan says, yes sir. And David says, I'm living in a house of cedars. God's living in a tent. I want to build him a house. And the way the text reflects, it's almost as if Nathan says, the Lord is with you. Go for it. But we don't really know. It could be possible that Nathan heard the request from David and, and then he heard nothing from God. He was kind of listening. He didn't hear anything. So he just said, okay, go for it. It could be possible that, and this, is, this seems more likely to me, that Nathan hears David's plan. Nathan knows David to be a godly man, loves the Lord. This sounds good, right? This, this, this contrast, it sounds good. God gets a house. He gets a permanent dwelling place. I like this. Let's do it. And he didn't really bother to inquire of the Lord because within the model of wisdom, this sounds pretty good. David has good intentions. It's honoring to the Lord. Let's do it. The Lord is with thee. Either way, though, it seems as though Nathan must have done something wrong. Something's amiss here because he tells David something that's simply not true. He tells David, the Lord is with you in this. When in fact, we'll find out in the coming verses, the Lord is not with him in this. And that's the problem, right? The, the Lord would not be with him, for indeed this is not God's will. And yet Nathan just said, go do all that is in thine heart. The Lord is with thee. So we find in verses 4 to 7 that, that the Lord does not want this. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? God speaks to David through Nathan, and, and his message is quite interesting. He begins by saying, David, will you? Will you really build me a house? Is this what you, you really want? Is, is this what I want? Do you, do, do, do you think I, I really want you? Did I ask you to build me a house? The, the translation here in the English, shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in, is a good translation of how the Hebrew reads, but it doesn't do a good job of actually translating the meaning over into English. The question that God asks David expects a negative response. So if we were to read into this question, it would read this way. David... Thou shalt not build me a house. That's what God is saying here. And lest you wonder if, if Pastor Wickler is just making this stuff up, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 4, we see a parallel passage. And notice what we read there. God speaking to Nathan. Go and tell David my servant, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in. In this passage, it's written a little bit of a different way. 
and it's written with the definitive thou shalt not. In the other passage, there's, there's this, this uh, different way of structuring the language. Say, Pastor, why are they different? Well, most likely what's happening is this. In 2 Samuel 7, the, the, the writer is actually quoting what God said. In the 1 Chronicles 17 passage, m many years later, the author of that book is paraphrasing or interpreting what God said in a way that's more understandable to, to that generation. And so what God said is, David, you may not build me a house. Something else that we don't find in these texts, but, with, but which I'd like to introduce to you this evening, is the reason why God would not allow David to build him a house. We've talked about it several times, but we've never actually explicitly seen in the text why it is. And it's interesting because we don't read it in 2 Samuel. God does not explain himself in the text in 2 Samuel as to why God would not allow David to build him a house. And even in this parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17, we do not find anything in the text about why God would not allow David to build him a house. We have to go actually to the days of Solomon, just before David's death, when David is commissioning Solomon to pick up the work of building this temple. We have to go to that time for David to explain. So most likely, again, what happened is this. David gets this response back from Nathan, you may not build God a house. And most likely, at some future date, God, uh, David was on his knees saying, God, I, I want to build you a house. Why won't you let me? And God explained himself to David personally. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 6 through 8, we find this explanation. The scriptures tell us, Then he, that's David, called for Solomon his son and charged him to build an house for the Lord, God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, I was, it was in my mind to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly. Thou hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build an house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. So the reason why God did not allow David to build for him a house is because David was a man who within the scope of his lifetime had shed much blood and had fought many wars. He was a man of war. He was a warrior through and through. He was a bloody man. And we have considered this since we've already walked through 1 Samuel together, how much blood David had shed. And that's not to say that, that it, was, it was unjust blood, right? With the exception of, of a few questionable times, we talked about when he had the raiding parties, when he was in the land of the Philistines for, for 18 months. And during those raiding parties, he killed everyone, not just the men, but the women and the children, so that they couldn't report back that he was killing Amalekites instead of killing Israelites, like he told the king he was doing. And so he was killing the entire, everyone, every, every living person he killed when, when he did those raiding parties. And yet the majority of his life, uh, he, was, he, he killed in war. These, were, these were, were justifiable killings as he fought wars against the enemies of God. 
So it's not that in, in, inherently that David had done anything wrong here. But the fact is, David was a man of war. He was a bloody man. He was a man who had killed many people. That was his reputation. It was not just his reputation among Israel. It was his reputation in the world. That this man is a warrior. And God says, I don't want my reputation associated with war and death. I want my house to be associated with peace. And so I will not let you build the house, but I will give your son peace. And I will let your son then build the temple. It's not that God was unwilling to have a house. It just wasn't the right timing. And it wasn't going to be David's privilege to do so. Back in 2 Samuel 7. He goes on then to ask several more questions of David, God does. He asks, having lived in a tent for some 500 years now, have I ever asked for a house? Have I ever been upset that I've not received a house of cedars? This is effectively what God asks here. To read into God's statements a bit, we could accurately insert something to the effect of, do I really care whether my presence rests in a tent or in a building? We've talked about that with the church, right? Does God really care whether we have ornate churches or not? The church is the people that could come together. And, and we, we can meet anywhere. We can meet here or there or there. And, and that does not matter as much to God as the fact that we are doing what he's asked us to do in assembling together to worship him and to bring glory to his name. Now, it's not wrong to have large, beautiful buildings as, and, and such. But it's certainly not necessary. And that's kind of the idea that God is giving here. He, he doesn't scorn David for David's desire. But he says, I've never really asked for that. My presence has been intense and that's been fine. God is not being cruel though. And let's make this very clear. God is not being cruel or upset. He's not even being facetious or sarcastic here. And he, he's in fact being quite gentle with David. He's being quite gentle as, as he tries to tell David, it's not for you to build me a house. David has good intentions here. David wants this. David loves the Lord. This is all good, but you know, it's just not God's will for David to build this house. And God is being pretty gentle about it. God then reviews his faithfulness to David in verses 8 and 9. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David. Remember, God's specifically talking to Nathan to tell David. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. So David is reviewing, or God is reviewing his faithfulness to David here, that he took David from a shepherd to a king, He's always been with David and he's always given him good success. David's enemies have been cut off. He is now at rest. He's a man of strength. He's a man of reputation, not just in Israel, but in his corner of the world. So much so that great kings such as Hiram, the king of Tyre, sought David's friendship and good graces. And God makes this summary as a way of telling David that he's not saying no to David's idea because he's rejecting who David is or of what David has done. 
In other words, God is saying, I'm not rejecting you. You know, some of us have that kind of a personality where when, when somebody says no to us, we start to wonder if maybe it's because of us. And, and you have to sit down and tell that person, you know, this isn't personal. This isn't because, because uh, it's not because of you. It's because of the situation or whatever the case may be. And David is being, uh, being well, God is being very, very gentle with David here. And he's very gently saying, I've blessed you. I've blessed you from the beginning. I made you from a shepherd to a king. I've been kind to you. My blessing is with you. But David, you can't build me this house. He then continues in verse 10. Moreover, he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Moreover, God says, he is interested in having a permanent dwelling place. Not inherently for his sake, because, because he doesn't want to move around anymore, but because God has always intended to establish the people and to give the people a place, a set place, where they could come to worship that wasn't, wasn't moving around, so that the people could settle into the land because God had settled in. Because God has a permanent place, so the people could feel a little more permanent. If God stopped moving, then the worship of the people could find a consistency. And so God has always intended this, since bringing the people into the land, that he would place his name in a place. In Deuteronomy 12, we read this, in fact. Deuteronomy 12, verses 9 through 11, look what we read. God says, For ye are not as yet come to rest and to the inheritance, which the Lord your God giveth you. But when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that ye dwell in safety, that's where David is right now, right? Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice vows, which ye vow unto the Lord. So God says, when you get into the land, when you finally find rest, when all of your enemies are taken care of and you're at rest in the land, I will choose out a place for you. I will designate a place for you to come and to give your offerings, and I'll put my name there. So God has intended this, and we see that, and we understand that. But now is not the time, God tells to David. And then God does something else. So God has explained himself very gently to David here. And now God does something else. Something that is so very much like our God. He says, David, I'm not going to allow you to honor me in this way. But let me tell you what. I'm going to honor you. Isn't that something? That God, who is so gracious to us, even to give us the ability to serve him, then rewards us for that service. He rewards us for the very thing that he has graced us to do when we do what he's graced us to do. It's, it's, it's uncanny that God is so good, so kind. It's unfathomable. And so... God has just said, David, you may not build me a house. God sees David's heart. David loves the Lord. David has the right intentions. You may not build me a house. 
But David, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to build you a house. Verse 11. God says, And as since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. I won't let you build me a house, David, but I'm going to build you a house. God is so patient, so gentle. Holy, yes. Just, absolutely. But so abundantly kind and so very patient and long-suffering and tender. And this promise, the promise to build David a house, continues over the next six verses. We read in verses 12 and 13, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God looks forward to the day when David will die. Not that he's looking forward to it, but he looks toward the day that David will die. And he promises to establish after David a son who will be able to build this house, who, with, with whom the kingdom will be established. God promises that this son will have the privilege of building the house for God, but that God will establish the throne of this son forever. This was to be a, a new threshold. It was to be a new time period for the kingdom of Israel, an established kingdom. Saul's throne had been brief, and then it had been given to another family, to David's family. But God promises that David's family, that it would not be that way with him. That God would not remove David and his family from the throne. That God would not give the throne over to another family in Israel. That David's family would never fail to have a king on the throne for as long as the throne existed. Every rightful king to ever preside over the nation, it didn't always have to be for, with, without break or without hiatus. But every rightful king to every preside, ever preside over the nation of Israel would be a David seed. Now on the short term, we know that Solomon is God's promise here, right? Solomon will be the son that God raises up to take the throne and to, to build the house of God. But in the long term, the establishment of David's throne forever, as he says at the end of verse 13, this is a promise of Messiah. Because all throughout the scriptures, and we'll see this over the next couple of weeks, God had promised that Messiah would rule and reign over them. And now David hears from God that there would never cease to be one of the lineage of David to sit on the throne in Israel. What does that mean? It means Messiah is going to come from David. It has to mean that. Because the Messiah would be king, and the lineage of David has now been given the throne perpetually. And David feels the fullest extent of the weight of what he was just promised. He was just promised that Messiah would come from his family. That's what he's being promised here. That's the weight of this covenant that God is making with David. Verses 14 and 15. God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. We're coming back to Solomon and to, to his physical posterity here. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. God promises that the faithfulness which he shows to David would not cease in the days of his son. That when his son, that would be Solomon, commits iniquity, he will chasten him, he says, with the rod of men, 
with the stripes of the children of men. The idea, this is kind of a, a Hebrew idiom. The idea there that he would chasten him with the rod of men and the stripes of men is that God would chasten David's son, chasten his family with the same chastening that would be inflicted on men that go astray. In other words, when your son sins, I will chasten him like I would chasten anyone else. They would not be exempt from chastening. God is not saying here, you're exempt. See, Saul was chastened out of the throne, right? He was chastened unto a breaking point, and then he was kicked off the throne. You're out. Chastening is now kicking you out of the, the throne. God says, I will chasten your son, but I will never kick him off the throne. In spite of the inevitable reality that David's posterity would sin, and we, we saw that in Solomon. We saw that Solomon sinned greatly before the Lord during his days. God says, however, he will never remove his mercy from David's son as he had from Saul. Now the contrast makes it clear that God's point is to quiet David's mind that his posterity would stay on the throne. David could look forward as he sees the, the, the future to his son sitting on the throne. Not like, not like Jonathan, his best friend, who's now dead because of his father and his father's poor choices, who would never get to see the throne because of his father's poor choices, thus being rejected as king. David's son would not lose the blessing that God has promised. And that was of great comfort to David. Verses 16 and 17, he says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all the vision. So did Nathan speak unto David. Well beyond just his son, God says that David's kingdom would be established forever, his throne forever. The nation and the role of David's family as the kingly line would persist into eternity. And it is this promise that overshadows the prophecies of Messiah. It is this promise that forms a piece of the foundation of Jesus' advent into the line of David. This is why, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's so important when we say that Jesus was of the lineage of David because it had to be because God just promised it to David. We'll talk more about this in the next two weeks as we take time to consider the importance not only of this covenant but of all of the covenants. We'll cover the first three covenants next week, the final two the week after that and how they relate to each other and how they relate to us in Israel. But for this evening, I want to go back I want to go back to David's interaction with Nathan, what Nathan says to David, what David says to Nathan. And the first point I'd like us to think about as we consider this interaction is that good intentions don't secure God's approval. Good intentions don't secure God's approval. When we consider what happens at the beginning of this chapter, we're confronted with a circumstance which is perhaps not too unfamiliar to us. We live from day to day. We go from decision to decision. We do our best. I can't imagine there are too many people under the sound of my voice this evening who, who just plain don't care what God thinks about the decisions that you make. There are times where we kind of partition decisions. 
We don't ask God because we don't necessarily, because, because we want to do what we want to do and we don't want to hear no. So we don't ask God. Or we run ahead of God doing what we want, not out of direct rebellion, only because of some degree of selfishness or self-interest. I, I would imagine that the majority of the people here want to do what God wants them to do. And so we, we establish a general wisdom model within which we operate. A model which, as best we can understand it, aligns ourselves with our love for God. We love God. We do things and we regard Him in our actions. We, we believe uh, He would want us to do the things that we're doing. And this is good. But this is what David does here, right? David loves the Lord. David wants to do what's best for the Lord. David reasons in his mind that he's in a house of cedar and the Lord is in a tent. So that as, as he, if he builds a house for God, then this would honor the Lord and he would not feel like he's in this beautiful house of honor and, and of majesty while God is just in a tent. So, so all of this is good. David feels it equitable that if he should have such a grand house, so to God have a grand house. And David is doing a great job at, at, at assessing through a wisdom model the direction that he should go. Nathan seems to identify this wisdom, identify David's love for God, no reason why David should not do this, and so says, do it, the Lord is with you. But do you know what's missing from this whole process of this is good and good intentions and honor the Lord? It's, it's missing God's opinion. It's missing God's opinion. What does God think about it? See, no, no one stopped to ask God what he thought. God, do you want a house? God, do you want this? David does his part. He consults with the prophet. I think that's probably what David should have done, right? He consults with the prophet of God. Should I do this? This is what I want to do. Nathan, though, doesn't ask God. He says, go for it. He takes for granted that this wisdom model, that David's good intentions are sufficient because they seemed right. But it doesn't always work that way. Not everything that is good is God's will. Not, just because it's right doesn't mean it's what God wants. We can all have good intentions in this world, but good intentions don't inherently secure God's approval. So you're doing what you're doing. You're doing it for the Lord. You're serving the Lord. But have you ever stopped to ask if God wants you to do it? Have you ever stopped to ask, God, is this what you have for me? I think missionaries come up, this happens with missionaries sometimes. They point themselves toward a field and they have every good intention of serving the Lord but they really never stopped to discern whether or not God wanted them there. And they get there and things kind of fall apart because God didn't actually want them there. And their good intentions weren't enough to push through the struggles of ministry because if you don't have the Lord's blessing, you're not going to make it. And, and, and yet, it's not just a ministry thing. It's in every element of our lives. Good intentions aren't always enough. You've searched your heart. Your intentions are pure. 
You've asked others. No one can pinpoint a problem, but have you asked God? Is this what God wants for you? Now, good intentions can get you pretty far. A wisdom model of decision-making can put you in a good place physically and materially, but it won't necessarily get you where God wants you. We need to be active in our communication with the Lord. We need to be active in seeking not just good things through good intentions, but seeking God's intentions. God's best doesn't come through good intentions. God's best comes from asking Him what He wants us to do and then doing what He tells us to do. I preached a message in 2 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 7, called Inquiring of the Lord. In it, I reminded you that we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling and that we don't need to live this life just based upon chance. That God's Spirit lives inside of you and that He will guide you in the way that you should go through properly discerning the Spirit of God. You can know, not just assume, but know what God wants of you. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of mystical, you're hearing God and, and, and God is you know, writing things on the refrigerator with your kids' magnets and such. That's not what's happening, right? That, that's not it. But it is definitive impressions given to you by the Spirit of God in the way that you should go that you can test through proper biblical methods. It's the same thing that happens when you're convicted of sin when, you, when, when someone's preaching, right? Someone's preaching and you know that this is for you. There, there is something that weighs on your heart. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you. That's the Spirit of God saying, listen to this and take action. Well, it's not just conviction where the Spirit of God does that. It's not just when you've sinned. What about when you want God to point you in the right direction? What about, what about when, when, when you have every desire to do what's right and you're walking with the Lord and you're ready to take the next step? Can't God do the same thing for you then? Even if you're doing good things, even if you have good intentions, if it isn't what God wants, then it won't have God's blessing. It may work out physically, but it won't find spiritual blessing. It may make sense physically, but it won't echo in the kingdom of heaven. We quoted that adage in our introduction, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, to which one novelist said, Hell isn't merely paved with good intentions. It's walled and roofed with them. A philosopher in the early 20th century once said, The evil that is in the world almost always comes of ignorance, and good intentions may do as much harm as malevolence if they lack understanding. It's not enough just to have good intentions. We need to have God's intentions. Jesus is a great example of this. He said in John 5, verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Jesus declared that he sought not the will of his own, but the will of God. Jesus did not coordinate the Father's desires with his desires. Jesus didn't just run off on good intentions and say, well, I love the Lord, so everything I do is going to be blessed by God as long as I love the Lord and want, want to please Him with it. Jesus did not just the work that He perceived to be God's best, 
into his decision model. He set himself aside completely. He turned himself toward the will of the Father, and he said, if God wants it, that's what I'm going to do. If God doesn't want it, I'm not going to do it. He did not operate on good intentions. He operated on God's intentions, and that makes all the difference. So good intentions don't secure God's approval. You know, so too ought we, not just to operate on good intentions, but to operate on God's intentions. Don't just assume that something has God's blessing just because it has God in mind, or because your intentions are honest before God. Find out what God wants. Search the scriptures, search the spirit, set yourself aside, and do God's will, and then you will have the praise of God. So good intentions don't secure God's approval. That is intended for all of us. Again, I, I, in our second point, I focus on leaders this evening. Good intentions don't excuse ungodly counsel. Good intentions don't excuse ungodly counsel. I've hit leaders a lot over the past several weeks with various points having to do with David and having to do with leadership. We considered a couple of weeks ago David's choice when transporting the Ark of the Covenant and remarked, that David, as a leader of men, was, was in many ways responsible, not just for himself, but for others with his decisions. And when he decided to, to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem on a cart, instead of with the staves that God had ordained, the cart shook, the Ark began to tip, Uzzah put up his hand to stop it, he touched the Ark, he was struck dead. David's decision ultimately led to Uzzah's death. If David had made the right decision in how to transport the ark, not according to his good intentions, but according to God's will, which he clearly laid out in the word of God, that would never have happened. Similar can be said about our counsel. As we walk through this life, we don't walk alone. People come and people go, some closer than others. Iron sharpens iron. You take advice, you give advice. Nathan here, as a prophet of God, obviously had a very high level of accountability and responsibility before God. As a pastor, my accountability will be greater than yours in my giving of advice because I'm in a position of trust and I'm in a position of authority. Parents, your accountability will be greater than your children because you are in a position of trust and authority. But make no mistake, spiritually speaking, we just can't get by in our advice on good intentions. We just, it's not enough. When it comes to leading others into the will of God, we would do well not to simply come with good intentions. Had Nathan the prophet but inquired of the Lord, he could have avoided a situation where he reflected God's blessing upon a decision that absolutely did not have God's blessing. But he failed to first inquire of the Lord and he gave bad counsel. He gave counsel which was contrary to God's will. Now so too it can be with us leaders. Men will rise and men will fall under the weight of their own decisions. But to whatever degree we have the privilege of influence, let us not take it lightly. Let us approach it prayerfully and carefully and with deep humility. Because the last thing we want is for our ignorant good intentions to lead others into decisions that are outside of God's will for them. Yes, they make the decision. Yes, it rises and falls on them. But when we are in a position of authority and counsel, we would do well to ensure that our counsel is godly. So these two applications this evening. Good intentions don't necessarily secure God's approval. 
Good intentions don't necessarily excuse ungodly counsel. May God help us as we see this example of Nathan and how he interacted with David to use it as a little bit of a warning for us just to ensure that we're operating whether it's giving counsel or whether it's our own decisions that we're operating on something more than just good intentions so that we can have the confidence of knowing that God's will that we are in God's will not just attempting to figure out something that we think might please God. Let's close in prayer.